Good morning. I'm Ken Weinstein, President and CEO of Hudson Institute. I'd like to welcome our audience here at the Betsy and Walter Stern Conference Center and the viewers at home on C-SPAN to Hudson Institute. We couldn't be more pleased to host this special event, which is actually the penultimate event that we're <coughs> going to be holding here at the at our office space here on 15th Street, uh, office facilities we've been in since June 2005. The, this is the last one we're doing featuring a member of Congress before we move to a uh, state-of-the-art facility at 1201 Pennsylvania Avenue. And I cannot imagine a more fitting speaker for this event than the chairman of the Home House Homeland Security Committee himself, a dedicated public servant and a great friend of Hudson Institute, Congressman Mike McCall of Texas. We're here today to talk national security, more specifically homeland security. And homeland security is a topic of significant concern to us here at Hudson Institute. Over the past year, we've released a number of major studies on the issue, the leading one being a Blue Ribbon Commission blueprint uh, for biodefense, a commission that was co-chaired by Senator uh, Joseph Lieberman and Governor Tom Ridge that uh, looked at the uh, challenges we face in meeting the immense threat of uh, bioterrorism or of biohazard, and the commission's report uh, garnered significant headlines and were the, the subject of uh, hearings in both uh, the House and the Senate. And I know that we briefed uh, Con Chairman McCall on the findings of our report uh, and briefed a number of other important uh, figures on Capitol Hill. We've done work also on cyber defense, on cyber terrorism, and cyber-enabled warfare. Of course, all of us as Americans were sadly reminded last month in San Bernardino that oceans are no longer enough to protect our, our country to keep our enemies away. ISIS continues to control vast territory in the Middle East, terrorizing people of those countries while planning attacks against the U.S. and its allies. At the same time, we obviously face a major crisis on our southern border, a drug epidemic in this country with drug cartels and perhaps even terrorist groups seeking to exploit weaknesses at the border, posing serious economic, social, and national security challenges. In cyberspace, we see the continuing, uh, we find ourselves increasingly on the defensive <coughs> against Russia and China, whose capabilities at hacking uh, and continuous activities pose <coughs> challenges to our government and uh, to uh, our major corporations. And as San Bernardino showed, Social media itself is a powerful tool for groups like ISIS who continue to do us so much harm. Today, we get to hear from a man who sits at the center of oversight on this universe of threats, Chairman Mike McCall of the House Homeland Security Committee. It's a real honor to welcome you to Hudson. The chairman has represented Texas's 10th Congressional District since 2004. He, before entering Congress, he was a federal prosecutor and served as Chief of Counterterrorism and National Security in the U.S. Attorney's Texas offices. Throughout his career, he's been focused on the many threats that we face as a nation, and he is the author of a book that I highly recommend reading, just published actually on Monday, Failures of Imagination, The Deadliest Threats to Our Homeland and How to Thwart Them. It's a book that is quickly rising up on the uh, bestseller list. We look forward to welcoming the congressman back to discuss the book in a couple of months. And I want to note uh, uh, that uh, we at Hudson are proud to help worked with the congressman in sharing some ideas that are included in the book, 
and especially of note is the fact that the congressman is generously donating all proceeds to the Wounded Warrior Project, which makes the book an even more worthwhile uh, gift or worth reading. So Hudson has long been the home of uh, individuals who seek to solve tomorrow's problems today, so it's especially fitting to, uh, that we have Chairman McCall with us today to uh, address these issues. Without any further ado, let's welcome Chairman uh, Mike McCall. <clears throat> Appreciate that. Well, thank you, uh, Ken. I, uh, I just want to thank the Hudson Institute for hosting this. Uh, also, uh, thank you for your great help uh, on, on the book that I just wrote uh, that, um, as you mentioned, the proceeds will go to wounded warriors and their, their children. And uh, it's about failures of imagination, which uh, if you look back to uh, Pearl Harbor, you look back to 9-11, uh, <clears throat> the 9-11 Commission talked about how that was um, contributed to what happened that fateful day. And um, it's a point of discussion, uh, a point of discussion, I think, in the 2016 presidential debate. It was designed to do that uh, so that we can see the threats as they really are uh, and how can we best deal with those threats. Uh, I was here to speak on the, the president's remarks last night, the State of the, of the Union, and, and I must say, <clears throat> I guess not surprisingly, uh, the lack of emphasis uh, on what I think is probably the number one issue now facing the nation, and that's national security, it's the safety of Americans, um, and it's a threat that we see from various uh, points across the globe, from ISIS to Iran to Russia, China, mentioned cybersecurity as well. Most of the chapters in the book are devoted to each of these specific threats uh, that are out there. And I know it's been said already, but I thought I was the first one to say it last night that it was more of a state of denial of, of what the real threat is. Um, almost hearkening back to when he spoke about ISIS, uh, the JV team, I think last night he said it was political hot political rhetoric, and they're running around in SUVs and um, pickup trucks uh, operating out of apartments and garages, really uh, not still seeming to understand or emphasize the threat. And it's always puzzled me about this administration why the emphasis is not on national security, why the emphasis is not on homeland security. In fact, those, two were, those four words were not mentioned last night, homeland security or national security at all. We heard climate change quite a bit uh, last night. And at the very end, he addressed national security issues, um, but did not, I, in my opinion, deal with them head on uh, in a truthful and honest way, but rather an attempt as he has throughout his administration to downplay the threat. Um, it's puzzled me as a you know, former counterterrorism official in the Justice Department why he does this. The only explanation I can think of is that it, does, it never fit with his campaign narrative. The narrative was to end the war in Iraq and Afghanistan and to close down Guantanamo. He did mention Guantanamo last night. Uh, he mentioned the fact that um, uh, he intends to release the prisoners from Guantanamo. 
and people left there are probably the worst of the worst, and that, that concerns me uh, a great deal. I think when ISIS came about, and you can blame, uh, people can blame the prior administration for going into Iraq, and I understand some of those arguments, but I also think that the way we left it, uh, Iraq was stabilized without a status of forces agreement, though, and without any engagement with Prime Minister Maliki, uh, in fact, Ms. Clinton went to uh, Baghdad one time for three hours in her tenure as Secretary of State, that that condition imploded, and out of the ashes came ISIS, formerly AQI, uh, in Iraq. We have safe havens. Uh, we have power vacuums all throughout northern Africa and the Middle East that are now um, really a haven for the terrorists. And the threat, in my judgment, is not decreasing, and it's not to be downplayed, in fact, it's getting worse, not better. And the facts don't lie. When you look at the number of foreign fighters, 25,000 to 30,000, now 35,000 foreign fighters from 100 different, uh, 100 different countries, actually 120 now, different countries throughout the world. 5,000 with Western passports, hundreds of Americans that have traveled and come back. Um, this all, in my judgment, poses a threat, serious threat to the homeland. I met yesterday with the police chief of San Bernardino and the sheriff who were um, invited by their member of Congress to sit uh, at the State of the Union. And I was um, really disappointed. The president never recognized them. Uh, he never even recognized the fact that San Bernardino even happened last night. He didn't recognize Chattanooga. He didn't even talk about the Paris attacks. To me, that was a glaring absence in a State of the Union speech uh, that, that was largely about the economy and his legacy, but, but little that had to do with national security and foreign policy, and I think that's because his record uh, is lacking. I think his, his record is not his legacy. Even though he touts the Iran negotiation as one of the greatest achievements, I think his legacy at the end of the day on these issues is not going to be his strongest uh, suit. And uh, perhaps that's why he's downplaying it. Um, I, I continue to really be baffled by the fact that he doesn't address these issues head-on that so many Americans are concerned about. Um, I will end on this. I will say on a positive note, because I like to be a little bit balanced in my remarks. Um, we'll be the last, uh, I guess, State of the Union that will uh, hear. I, I, we anticipate it would be about his legacy. His, um, his call um, to action on... Uh, cancer, NIH funding, and conquering cancer, and comparing that to landing a man on the moon. Uh, I would argue to the next presidential, to all the presidential candidates, uh, that that uh, is is a worthy uh, achievement. Uh, that 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 is something that I would like to see elevated to the presidential uh, campaign because I think it's so important. Uh, my wife sits on the board, MD Anderson. Um, I passed a childhood cancer bill that resulted in the first childhood cancer drug developed 
since the 1980s. Been very dedicated to the cause. We had NIH funding increased uh, in a very significant way in the omnibus. Um, and I think that it, through innovation uh, and through what NIH can do in terms of scientific achievements and the Cures Act that we have, we passed in the House, that's, that's in the Senate, we can do some great things uh, for the American people and the world in terms of curing diseases. But I think a presidential candidate that takes on cancer and the challenge to conquer it um, uh, would be well advised. And I think uh, as, a, as a takeaway last night, that was, that was one, uh, one thing that really stuck out, in my opinion, is, is a very uh, worthy uh, uh, argument that he made last night. So with that, uh, I'd love to open this up to more of a Q&A discussion. I like to have conversations more than just uh, pontificating and uh, giving speeches. But... Um, I mean, to, to sum it up, I, I guess disappointed is a word of the lack of, of, of uh, time and attention on what I consider to be the most important issues facing this nation, um, and quite frankly, the lack of interest that he's demonstrated uh, throughout his presidency on this issue. Um, so with Kim, with that, I, I'll turn it over to you. Well, thank you for those uh, insightful and also, frankly, uh, touching remarks about the fight against uh, childhood cancer in particular. Let, let me ask you, uh, as, let's talk to, let's, you ended on, a, on an upbeat, positive note. Let's turn to a very dark note. As chairman of the House Homeland Security Committee, what keeps you up the most at night? What do you fear the most in terms of attacks on our <coughs> homeland? Yeah, I think right now it, it's uh, somewhat in the weeds, but it's something the FBI director and I have talked about, Secretary of Homeland, not a partisan issue. It's, it's encryption. Uh, it's um, this dark communication space in which the terrorists uh, can't communicate freely without our ability to detect it, even if we have a court order. Um, the Paris attacks, you had eight uh, attackers and probably 20 co-conspirators, without any ability to detect uh, that um, and stop it from happening. I know as a former federal prosecutor, the way you stop bad things from happening is you get a, a Title III wiretap or a FISA, you listen to the communications, and then you intervene at the right time and stop uh, the bad act from happening, in this case a terrorist attack. Uh, without our ability to monitor these communications, we can't stop it. So if they can communicate in darkness and we can't shine a light on their dark communications, uh, we won't have the ability to, to stop uh, these terrorist events. And when Paris occurred and there was no ability to, um, the fact that we had no uh, warning signs in advance uh, told me, even before I even got briefed on it, uh, that it was uh, a dark space communication uh, environment. Um, and in fact, it turns out they were using these uh, apps, apps on the iPhone that were um, Telegram was the one that's uh, popular. There are a bunch of others uh, that they were using. Uh, I, along with Senator Mark Warner, have proposed the idea, and we will be presenting the idea of a commission uh, to put Silicon Valley experts, uh, federal law enforcement, the intelligence community, and um, FBI, NSA, Homeland Security on a commission to report to Congress like the 9-11 Commission 
to provide a, a solution to this problem, a technology solution, because right now they're not sitting down. They're not even talking to each other. I tried to play shuttle diplomacy between them, um, and it's, it's, uh, it's a stalemate. And I think if Congress forces them to, to communicate and report recommendations and findings, that, that's the best way to do that. In fact, one of the chapters in my book involves foreign fighters involved in dark space communications. This was written before Paris happened and before San Bernardino. Uh, that happened about a month or two after, uh, after the fact. So the active shooter, foreign fighter, because there's so many of them, the dark space communications, and then finally, to finally answer your question, is the radicalization over the Internet. You know, all these Internet communications coming out of Raqqa, Syria, to kill police officers like we saw in Philadelphia, the attempt to kill military like we saw in Chattanooga, uh, to hit military uh, installations. Uh, we're seeing 200,000 tweets per day coming out of Raqqa, Syria, to do just that. And, and the, how we've stopped most of this stuff is uh, phenomenal. Uh, we've had 79 ISIS-related arrests in this country. Um, it's hugely significant. So we stopped a lot of bad things, but it's the case that we don't know about. When I get the call from Homeland Security, the FBI on Chattanooga or San Bernardino, you know that that it didn't. Uh, we we didn't know about that one. Uh, that's what that's what bothers me. The one the one we couldn't stop. What beyond the, uh, getting into these dark communications do we need to do to prevent another San Bernardino or another Paris attack? What are we not doing? Well, we, you know, we say there's no specific incredible threat, and that's, that's the good news. But the bad news is you don't know what you don't know. There are, I, I'm convinced there are cells in the United States that we don't know about that are actively plotting. We just don't know about it. And, and if we can't see their communications, that, that raises the stakes even higher. And, and it's a foreign fighter that's, that's trained in the art of jihad that can take that to the streets of Paris or to the streets of New York that could orchestrate a major attack, a shopping mall, um, you know, an aviation sector attack like what we saw with the Russian airliner. You know, we, we only thought al-Qaeda had that, that capability. Now we know ISIS is looking at external plots after the downing of the Russian airliner, and there's a chapter in my book that addresses that as well. Um, in addition to the active shooter. Um, and that is terror by definition. Mm -hmm. when you, you don't know where it's coming from. And people get killed, even if, even if it's just a handful of people, like in San Bernardino, it's still a significant event. And I thought that was, quite frankly, a bit of a disgrace that that was not even acknowledged last night. Or the heroism of the first responders to San Bernardino Bernardino as they sat in the audience mm -hmm. at the State of the Union at least should have been recognized. Very interesting. Let me ask you, uh, let me ask you one last question, then we'll open it up to the audience. Uh, obviously, at the time of the Snowden revelations, there was a significant debate about just how much damage uh, he had done to U.S. national security and to the national security of our allies. Looking back at the immense growth uh, in ISIS since then, and um, how would you assess the damage that he did, and, mm. or how, and 
what do we, and how much, how, how many years are we going to be dealing with that challenge? No, I think it, for a long time, I, you have know, read the DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency's report, the first of many, um, on the actual damage, and it, it's very costly to the United States military, to our national security, um, in the billions, if not trillions of dollars. And um, not to mention that the dark space phenomenon, it really is an offshoot of Mr. Snowden, because um, it's, it, these apps are developed for privacy reasons. Now, I have to be careful. I mean, you know, when I talk to the technology companies and Apple, um, you know, or in, they're in my district in Austin, and they'll tell you they want apps that, that have privacy protected yeah, or attached to financial records or health care records, and, and we understand that. And that's why I think it's a delicate balance between privacy and security when we look at this encryption issue. Um, I don't think a simple amendment of the statute to allow uh, a backdoor into a device that the government could get access to um, is necessarily the answer. I think, I think there's a technology solution ultimately to this that does protect privacy while providing security when we have probable cause to get a, a warrant by a judge, by a federal judge, then to open up those communications and, and see them. Um, so this is, I think, one of the greatest challenges of uh, counterterrorism officials um, that we've seen in quite some time. And it's really kind of an offshoot of what Mr. Snowden did. Let's, uh, let's now open it up to the, the audience for questions. I ask you to identify yourself if you have an affiliation and to please uh, keep it to a question uh, rather than a, a broad statement. And why don't we start over here? Thank you. We'll have the microphone. Thank you. Uh, congratulations on your book, Chairman. I'm Michael Daugherty. Uh, I'm with something called the Secure Identity and Biometrics Association. Uh, we're concerned about terrorist travel. I know that uh, the House took up legislation uh, in uh, the fall to address the visa waiver program and how to counter terrorists from uh, actually getting on a plane and coming to the U.S. Uh, what is the future state, uh, in your mind, uh, to address the vulnerabilities in the program? Is there more that we can do? Um, like your thoughts on that. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I, you know, we um, talked a lot about Syrian refugees and the threat of that, the Iraqi refugees that were uh, arrested just recently. But but really the visa waiver was uh, always the bigger sort of issue that we were most concerned about. And that is because you had 5,000 foreign fighters that traveled to the region that had Western passports that could uh, essentially get into the United States without without a visa. And so our bill addressed that, and we added Iraq, Syria, uh, Sudan, and Iran, which was um, to the administration. They weren't happy about the fact we put Iran in there because of the business interests. Um, it would um, stifle, in some respects, the Iranian deal uh, from the business side. They have to apply for visas. But we felt from a national security perspective that was important. Uh, to do that. We, we are working in my committee on an expanded visa waiver security program um, that's sort of in its developmental stages, but there are a lot of things we can be doing. Uh, in addition to just even looking at the social media of the applicants, which we know uh, in the San Bernardino case, I think it's important to note that it was inaccurately reported that, that um, the Pakistani wife had 
um, social media public jihad postings. That was inaccurate. Uh, however, there were private communications about it that you'd need predication and a warrant to see that we didn't know about. But, <clears throat> but I do think it's a lesson learned that we ought to be looking at social media postings for people who apply for visas, particularly in countries of interest like Pakistan. Um, any employer does that before they hire somebody. Pretty fundamental stuff. And um, rather than taking their word for it, carte blanche in an interview, I think that's the kind of investigative work that's necessary in the social media age uh, to protect Americans. Because, you know, to your point, travel, Homeland Security is really about, <clears throat> it's about, uh, in large part, about identifying the threats, keeping the threats outside of the United States, but travel, keeping people, bad people, outside of the United States and bad things from coming in. Um, you mentioned the border. There's a chapter in my book about the southwest border. And, and you know, the latest issue of Dubuque Magazine talks uh, uh, in a, an alarming way, really, about a, a Pakistani nuke being smuggled through transnational criminal organizations into the Western Hemisphere. And we know Iran has these flights to Venezuela that we can't get the manifest on and smuggled across the southwest border into the United States. And that's coming from ISIS. I always take my, my enemy's words um, to heart when they say things like that. Whether they, they have the capability to do it, that's the question. But when they say it, you know, it gets my attention. Yes, uh, I'm Pat Kurlovsky, Voice and Noise Foundation. Uh, how much has home security focused strictly on what's terrorist-induced? Because there are other homeland security threats that have nothing to do with terrorism. It could be just misfortunes, accidents. For instance, at this moment, in my opinion, we have bank regulation that seriously distort the allocation of bank credit within the economy, weakening dramatically the economy in a fairly short term. Uh, who, who takes care of that type of risk? Isn't it not uh, a risk that one focuses too much on what's terrorist-induced and forgets mm. about Trojan horses of other uh, type? Sure. Uh, it's been said the national debt's one of the greatest threats to our national security, and, and, and that's been mentioned as well. I think that kind of goes to the mission statement of, of the department. Uh, the department was formed after 9-11, a, a, a horrific terrorist attack, um, and that, that's a mission of the department. Perhaps you're quite, you know, that would be more in lines with the, the mission of the Treasury you know, Department uh, in terms of what you're talking about, but uh, not to minimize that as a threat uh, as well. I just think that the department was stood up by Congress uh, to address the, the threat of, of terrorists. Hi, my name is Barbara Dello, and I'm a nurse, and I'm a mom, and I'm an LI graduate. Um, my question is, you know, I know about terrorism and nuclear threats. Um, are there more advanced technologies um, by some of our adversaries who are very sophisticated technologies? technologically that are threats to our country. I mean, as a nurse, I know about lasers. I know about the dangers they can do to uh, human tissue. Um, and, uh, you know, we saw Star Wars, since I'm a mom, 
And um, <laughs> so I was wondering, is, are there any threats beyond the very obvious ones that, uh, as a person from New York, we're a prime target? Sure. I mean, from a technology standpoint, and I, I saw the movie as well. I have five, five teenagers, so I have a lot of uh, Homeland Security issues myself. But, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but uh, there, are, there are a lot of technology threats. And, and like any, you know, we look at the kinetic threats of ISIS, but then you try to stay in front of that curve. But then there are a lot of technology threats. There are a lot of bioterror threats that we I have a chapter in my book um, that um, deals with a smallpox outbreak. We, we have an entire global population that's not inoculated to smallpox anymore that killed 100 million people. Um, that, that's a, a serious concern. Um, cybersecurity is, from a consequential standpoint, is a huge issue. It could cause enormous damage. There's a chapter in the book about quantum computing and you know, whoever develops that first is like the atomic bomb. That's going to be the, the you know, that's, that is a powerful, going from the abacus to the computer, quantum computing is going to be a huge step forward for whoever gets to it first. And then the ability to use it offensively. Um, but, you know, whether it's power grids, the financial institutions, energy sector, all those things are vulnerable to a, a cyber attack in a destructive way like what we saw with North Korea and the Sony attacks, or Iran with Saudi Aramco, their energy companies shutting it down, or Russia and Estonia. Um, they all are developing the capability. China stole 20 million national security clearances, including mine. Um, and and that, that, there's a technology threat that we got to stay in front of as well. And we need the private sector, really. we got to leverage the private sector to, to find those answers. Uh, to those. We did pass, I was happy to see, after a lot of years of hard work, a landmark cybersecurity bill, this last Congress, that provides for information sharing with liability protection from the federal government to the private sector and back, and also between private to private. So let's say you know, J.P. Morgan and Chase Manhattan can now share malicious codes to protect their themselves from attacks without the threat of a lawsuit, that's going to facilitate the sharing of threat information. So um, it doesn't get into lasers and what you're talking about, but, but it, to the point that technology threats are real, um, and it's important we have a department that can stay in front. We have a science and technology uh, you know, uh, office within the department itself that really tries to stay in front of these threats and, and a weapons of mass destruction unit. Um, but I, I really think, and I, I, I emphasize to the department the, the need to really leverage the private sector for a lot of these solutions to those problems. Brian, over here. Yeah, the, one of the uh, big stories in the past week was the capture of El Chapo, which appears to maybe have had something to do with Sean Penn. So we can thank him for, for that. Um, wanted to know, you mentioned earlier the border. Um, the cartels down there are obviously extremely violent and, and dangerous. Uh, what threat do you see, and, and what's your perspective right now on, on the threat? Um, we know the drugs come, but um, the other aspects of, of that violent culture coming here. 
Sure, and, and I know there's some embassy uh, officials here. I want to I want to uh, applaud and commend um, you know Mexico uh, for extraditing him. The last time he was captured, I urged the ambassador from Mexico to he's a good friend of mine to <clears throat> extradite him because of his history of corruption and breaking out. And of course, that's exactly what happened. And I, I think now they understand that. Um, in a supermax prison in the United States is where he needs to be. And so um, I, w- I was really glad to see that. And, and um, there are multiple federal jurisdictions where he'll, he could stand trial, maybe in, in all of them. And, uh, but uh, I think the threat of the drug cartels in terms of corruption and violence can never be underestimated. They're present in all, ma- all 50 major cities in the United States. Um, They've infiltrated the United States. I think the sort of the crisis du jour is ISIS right now. But I've been focused on the drug cartels because I live in a state that's on the border for quite some time, and I've seen the threat and the threat of having a policy where your border is not secure and and the ability of them to come in and network inside the United States. And anytime, wherever you see drugs going in Latin America up, you see the corruption and you see the violence. And and that's... uh, yeah, that's what you see, um, and it doesn't get reported probably as much, much as it should, um, but it, it's uh, from a just law enforcement standpoint in the United States is a serious problem, um, <clears throat> and I think it starts with how we deal with our Latin American neighbors to the south and Mexico in dealing with these threats, uh, but also in securing uh, the border. I have a border security bill that we'll be talking about at my retreat, um, we have our Republican retreat uh, leaving today, and that's going to be one of our topics of discussion about are we going to put that on the floor and try to pass it. Yeah. Let me ask a follow-up to Brian Blake's question. And Brian's, Brian's with our cent- Center for Substance Abuse Policy, does work there, and the center is run by former drug czar John Walters, so we follow these issues very closely. In 2012, you, you uh, authored a study that looked at uh, Iran's growing role in Central America, and talked about uh, uh, and Hezbollah's growing presence as well, and, the, and about the possibility of them of Hezbollah and Iranian agents working with drug cartels, uh, and the impact that might have on our country and on that region. What direction is that? Have you followed that at all? Is the, is the sure? Well, yeah, not to plug the book. <laughs> one, one of the chapters is devoted to that. Be shameless. Be shameless. <laughs> Failures of imagination. Crown forum. <laughs> But it's, um, there, there is a connection between Iran and Venezuela and Iran and, and Latin America, Iran and the tri-border area. Uh, there are Iranian operatives down there. Um, you know, the, it, these aero terror flights, they call them, from, uh, between Tehran and, to Damascus and Caracas are real. We don't know what are on those flights. Uh, we did have the Saudi ambassador um, plot to assassinate that um, – the Iranian Quds Force operator thought he's dealing with a, a drug cartel member. In fact, it was a DEA undercover agent, fortunately, that really was conducted at the highest levels of the Iranian government, the head of the Quds Force. Uh, I think with the lifting of the sanctions and the hundreds of billions of dollars that will go to Iran, uh, you can't kid yourself that that's not going to uh, go into their economy, but it's also going to go into terrorist uh, financing. They're the largest state sponsor of terror. And I think 
that deal is, is a dangerous one because it's going to put a lot of money into terrorist financing operations, not only in the Middle East where they're heavily engaged, um, and the tension between Saudis and Iran's never been greater than it is today, but, but also their influence here in the Western Hemisphere and, and the threat to uh, the United States. They have killed Americans in the past, and they'll uh, try to do so in the future. Actually, over here than there. Thank you for coming. Uh, Mitsuo Nakai is my name, uh, a member of Reagan Foundations. Uh, speaking of North Korea, I'm talking about ballistic missile capabilities, and so that's, that's going to belong to Homeland Security because it's uh, a danger from outside. Can you comment on that? How much do you think that's <coughs> real a threat? Well, I think the, the detonation of, it wasn't a hydrogen bomb, but it, it was, it was, they tried to give the optics the appearance that it was, but, but it was a pretty significant detonation that North Korea, uh, and it was, it was a warning shot, uh, a, a showing of muscle and power uh, on the part of North Korea, um, and the idea, their, their, their range, um, they are developing intercontinental ballistic uh, capability. Capabilities not, um, some would argue, could reach Hawaii. Some even say possibly California without a lot of accuracy, though, is my understanding. But you know, at the same time, when I asked Secretary Kerry, why aren't we dealing with the ICBM capability with Iran in this deal? Because I told us that I'm going to continue to, we're going to ramp up production of ICBMs. And we saw that they just tested, you know, just recently uh, tested these, and, and they're developed, they're called intercontinental because they're designed to, to deliver, the only reason they're designed is to deliver a nuclear device intercontinental across continents. And yet this deal had no impact on that capability. And the connection between Iran and North Korea is real. AQ Khan and his network of Pakistan to uh, Iran and the sharing of nuclear technology to North Korea, that nexus is, is real when it goes back to, to A.Q. Khan, the grandfather or godfather of the, uh, or I would say the uh, Pakistani atomic bomb, sharing that with Iran and North Korea. So they, they, are con they constantly share technology, Iran and North Korea. I, I think it's a serious threat. And I appreciate your understanding that too often people compartmentalize what's homeland security threat and what's not. Just because it may be a military threat overseas, that is a homeland security threat if it can reach the United States of America. And so, um, no, we're very, we're very concerned about it. China could uh, have a lot of influence. Uh, we voted on the House for this week the sanctions against Iran, but also uh, uh, Korea, North Korea. Uh, I think China, if forced to do business either with the United States or North Korea, they're going to do business with us. And those sanctions worked for a long time. We lifted those to negotiate with them. Cheney, uh, Vice President Cheney, told me it's one of the biggest mistakes of the Bush White House is that they attempted to negotiate and they got, you know, taken advantage of. And I, I would argue that the Iranian deal is, is very similar uh, to that negotiation. 
Hi, I'm Michael Casey from ML Strategies. So regarding cyber issues, one way to address cyber threats seems to be expanding and improving the technology workforce. And yet today, employers continue to struggle to fill upwards of a million well-paying tech jobs. Additionally, one of their biggest cyber vulnerabilities is often their own employees, what is known as the negligent user. So what can Congress do to encourage more people to pursue technology jobs and to improve the cyber technology proficiency of both private and federal employees? That's, that's a great question. It's, it boils down to the workforce. And we had a, a cyber workforce bill that we passed to encourage and enhance uh, centers of excellence, schools of excellence uh, for cyber uh, training. Um, I think a lot of it's going to be market, market driven, though, because you look at a lot of the upcoming, you know, in my hometown of Austin, we have so many startup cyber companies, and, and the future is uh, very bright for any young person that wants a promising career. That, that's, a, a, that's an area. It's not going away. It's just going to grow. Um, but to your point, it, it's hard to compete with the private sector with these jobs. It's really important that the NSA and DHS at the NCIC at, at Homeland has the expertise and the workforce necessary to protect the nation from cyber attacks. And uh, so we're looking at some innovative, creative ways to do that, maybe through a scholarship program where you do a certain number of years uh, committed to the federal government before you can leave and go to the private sector. It's a great training uh, Ground, but I, but I think I think maintaining a, a strong cyber workforce is a, is a huge challenge in the federal government um, because there's so much money to be made in the private sector on it, and um, so we're always looking at innovative ways to do that. Uh, but um, I think there's a certain amount of patriotism too that drives it. I think people sincerely go to work for um, Homeland Security Department or the NSA in the cyberspace because they feel like they're protecting their country. Hi. Wondering how could the, I guess, our government improve our efforts to counter ISIS on social media? Well, we're not doing a good job. Uh, I talked to <clears throat> Lisa Monaco in the White House about this uh, just the other day. We don't have a counter narrative. Um, State Department has a program, but it's not. Uh, you know, when it's the United States government with the United States flag attached to it, it's not going to hit the market <coughs> share that you want it to. That are going to actually listen. Um, so, she and I talked about how we can turn the State Department. I'm on the Foreign Affairs Committee as well to. Focus on programs that, that deal with, um, it's not the U.S. government counter-narrative, but rather a, it's, it's a narrative from an audience uh, that the audience over there will listen to, from leaders that, that, that will appeal to that audience, uh, particularly religious leaders. I've always thought in the Middle East uh, that we can, you know, drone strikes, are effective, but it won't kill an ideology. And we can send 100,000 U.S. combat troops there and kill, but at the end of the day, it's a war of ideology. And how do you counter 
that ideology. At the end of the day, it's their backyard. It's their responsibility to clean it up. It's their responsibility to, to clean up their own religion, to fix this problem they have within their own religion. And I think the best way to do that is to employ their, their uh, religious leaders to counteract that and to counter that narrative that it's not a glamorous thing to do. To go to uh, Syria, it's not a romantic journey. We're going to have a hearing in my committee in, in February <clears throat> with women uh, and their parents who have been exploited by ISIS. It's not a romantic journey. It's not an online dating service. Yet when they get there, they find out that women aren't really treated very nicely. Under Sharia law, in fact, women have no rights. And, and so I think the more we can get that message out there and counter that, and, and even in the United States, when they get these radical Internet you know, messages, come to Syria. It's two messages, come or kill where you are. That's what they say. Come to Syria to join the fight or kill where you are. And the thing that uh, doesn't make any sense to a lot of us is how can women be enticed by this and and travel to Syria um, and and be with ISIS? When we know, you and I know what the consequences are when they go over there, Um, but they don't. They're they're young and naive. And so I think that counter-narrative messages is so important, and we're, we're losing that. They win. They're winning right now in the social media propaganda every day. And this has gone beyond, you know, Bin Laden's caves and couriers, very primitive. The world today, these are most of them in their 20s, very sophisticated, savvy on the Internet, and they know how to exploit it really well. Uh, with the narrative, with the propaganda narrative that's very attractive to a young military-age male that wants to, to join a fight, that wants to be something greater, part of something greater, right? And they, they call it losers to lions in uh, NYPD. That's the lone wolf in the United States. That attracts someone in the United States to want to go over there to be a something greater, a greater cause, uh, and, you know, join a, a fight. And, and we're just not doing an effective job. I think that's an... I'm really glad you raised that point because, you know, at the end of the day, it comes down to ideologies. We win. <clears throat> at the end of the day, we win because our ideas are modern and progressive and right. Their ideas are 6th century A.D., for the most part, using sophisticated technology to advance it. Um, so we win at the end, but, but we're just not doing a very effective job right now. Let me ask, we've got a couple of minutes left. Let me ask two questions. Uh, first, uh, we've seen, unfortunately, I think back to the elections in uh, Spain a number of years back, uh, there was a horrific terrorist attack as uh, Prime Minister uh, Aznar faced re-election, and uh, he went down to defeat, and there have been attempts by terrorist groups and others to try to make a statement on the eve of major elections uh, around the globe. Obviously, we've mm-hmm. seen that uh, in Iraq, Afghanistan. Is that something you worry about first? Uh, and secondly, uh, uh, it, it, when the new president is sworn in on January 20th, uh, 2017, <clears throat> what institutional advice, what changes would you urge him to make in the structures of the federal government to meet the threats that uh, you've so uh, 
cogently outlined? Well, I think the next president's going to inherit a far more dangerous world um, than when Mr. Obama took office. That's just my opinion. I think there are so many hot spots right now that have to be dealt with, whether it be Russian aggression, Chinese uh, cyber hacking to ISIS itself, the threat of radical Islam throughout. Uh, it's a global phenomenon now. And how are you going to tackle that issue? Um, now, I think he goes beyond containment, but rather you know, destroying the threat overseas that we're not doing a very good job right now of doing. And it's dealing with ISIS, which I think the president has wanted to sort of disregard and ignore what wasn't supposed to happen under his watch. It was supposed to all be over. But the reality is ISIS reared its ugly head. And you can't turn a blind eye to it. You can't pretend like it doesn't exist. But you have to deal with it. You can't just, a lot of people have a simplistic notion that you push a button or you carpet bomb or you just, in one candidate's words, bomb the shit out of them. And that's, there's a military piece to this that, that's critical. But there's also a, there's a political piece to this. It's a civil war in Syria, and Assad has to be part of the solution as well. He's a magnet. I think the Russians actually could play a constructive role with Mr. Assad. I think the Russians will have a homeland security problem of their own. They already do with the Russian airliner. And I think dealing with the political situation on the ground in Iraq and Syria is also equally as important. Uh, and there's an economic diplomatic piece to this as well. There's a counter-narrative piece to this as well. There's not one simple solution of pushing a button and the whole thing's over with. Um, the military piece is, is important to have a military strategy yeah. that other countries you can lead as a superpower. I think one of the problems is we're not leading as a superpower uh, right now. We're retreating from the world in an isolationist way. Uh, Reagan led this nation as a superpower, and they respected us. Our allies don't respect us. They don't know. They're confused. Uh, Connie Rice said either they, they either... You want them to love you, but if they don't, you want them to respect, and if not, to fear. I don't think we have a lot of any of that right now. And, and, and so there's a lot of chaos, and I think the next president's going to have to bring some, some order to this, some leadership as a superpower, and, and, and fix these problems. The military strategy is lacking. I think it can be done. I've talked to the top military leaders. The rules of engagement need, need to be changed as well. But I think you can have a military strategy that the Arab League of Nations <clears throat> would follow. They tell me, the ambassadors from these countries, that you don't have a strategy. You want an Arab indigenous ground force? That's, we are prepared to do that if you had a strategy and Assad was part of the solution. Remember, a Sunni Arabs not going to do anything to help uh, defeat ISIS if they think it's going to empower Assad. That's part of the problem is the Shia-Sunni conflict. It's very, very complicated. Uh, they don't really particularly like ISIS, but at the end of the day, ISIS are, are Sunnis. And they're Sunni extremists that were a product of, of uh, Prime Minister uh, Maliki's actions and, and disenfranchising them, um, and also just a product of fanaticism. And so I think there, there's a military strategy that can be put in place, but you got to back that up with the, the political solutions and reconciliation within those war-torn countries. 
um, uh, and diplomatic solution as well. And so that would be my advice if I were the next national security advisor or whatever my role in a, a next administration would be. Um, you got to be smart about this. Um, and it, don't take the bait that all you got to do is drop a bomb and it's going to solve all the problems. I mean, it, it, that's part of it, obviously, but it, it's, not the, it's not the end all. And do you, do you see terror threats as looming during the election season? Is that? Yeah, you know, I think uh, they always want to influence the political ground on the game. I don't think the terrorists particularly have any partisan affiliation. They don't, uh, uh, they don't care uh, whether you're Republican or Democrat. They, they, they want to kill Americans. And so uh, whether they would try to influence an election, there's a chapter in my book about the influence of, of foreign money and foreign corruption in a, in a federal election that I think is a more likely scenario. Well, Congressman, look, Mr. Chairman, I want to thank you for... Uh, well, there's one more. I want, I want to give her the... Uh, yeah. Sure. Or no, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm sorry. Yes, go ahead. Let's keep yeah. it brief, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Um, approaching, I'm talking about Facebook, uh, approaching outward in a way that's kind of in-your-face feminism, as many people in America do, is, which is kind of the antithesis of what uh, many in the Middle East believe. Is that kind of taunting um, the people in that area? Yeah, I, yeah I'm, I'm just amazed that um, because they are so backwards. And you know, I mentioned 6th century AD. You know, I had Rudy Giuliani show me a book that had the, you know, Muhammad and cutting heads off. And women have no real role in the society uh, under Sharia law. And I know that sounds kind of crazy when you talk about these issues in the United States because it's so foreign to us that how could, how, how, how could a society give no rights to women? Uh, whatsoever. I know after 1979, a lot of that changed throughout the Middle East, too. After the, the fall of the Shah, the Ayatollah came into power. The Saudis reacted accordingly as well. So the, the Shia world was, was impacted, and the Sunnis reacted in a fundamentalist way, going backwards in time. Uh, the burqas you know, became very prevalent, as they are today. And I've been over to that part of the world, and yeah, I was there with my wife. And it was, it's very strange to see you know, that uh, code of conduct uh, and societal, the way they treat women. Uh, not to mention, you know, the mutilations that then, the things they do to women. And, um, and with absolutely no human rights at all. The human rights violations in that part of the world are significant and not <laughs> talked about enough. You know, we talk about their threat to the homeland and them killing us. We don't talk about the human rights violations to, to women uh, in that part of the world uh, enough. And I think that's a great, great note to end on, that we need to pay more attention to that. Great. And we'll, we'll then end on that note. I want to thank uh, Chairman McCall for a very thoughtful remark and remind everyone of your <laughs> new book, uh, Failures of Imagination, the Deadliest Threats to Our Homeland and How to Thwart Them. Remember that uh, all the proceeds are going to the Wounded Warrior Project. Thank you so much, Mr. Chairman, for your service and your remarks today. I appreciate thank you. It. Thank you.